Hi, welcome to a mathematical basis for reality. Chris, I think you should tell them that Physical Truth is a book on mathematics and philosophy, and that it's a good story. Yeah, okay, so we got to deal with Schrodinger's equation. I've been thinking quite a bit how I'm going to approach this, and Roxy has been telling me that I've got to find some sort of segue to, or segue, is it segue or segue? Um, to be able to get into and bring up and discuss Schrodinger's equation. This episode is very, very mathematical. It's got equations all over the yin-yang. And anyone who understands or lives with uh, applied mathematics will understand the consequences of what I'm talking about. I'm using straight uh, solving Schrodinger's equation by separation of variables. This was done by Schrodinger in his 1935 paper when he presented a thing. And um, uh, basically he used characteristic functions, the time-ordered characteristic functions, the spatially-ordered characteristic functions. And there are consequences to them, and there's consequences the boundary conditions. And basically we end up deriving Heisenberg from Schrodinger's equation. Uh, which are Heisenberg's the boundary conditions of Schrodinger's equation, which makes total sense. It makes total and complete sense uh, physically and also mathematically. It's what it is. You can drive it straight from the mathematics. And uh, that's part of what I have to do is find some sort of segue to go into it. What, okay. what does Schrodinger's uh, equation mean I, to you? No, oh. listen. What? I've been away for a while. Yeah. And while you were gone, um, you did something about Jane Austen. Mm hmm And then you did something about um, John Paul Sartre. Mm hmm And now you're looking at something by Cameron Road about... Um, artificial intelligence. Yeah, we may talk about. Okay, so wait a minute. Reality in a virtual world with artificial intelligence. Sorry, yeah, go on. So, um, yeah, I'm just wondering how this all fits together with your book. Because okay. I know that in your book you're going step by step to develop your philosophy and your mathematics, that, um, and you're going somewhere with this. But what has Jane Austen and um, John Paul Sartre and artificial intelligence have to do with the book Physical Truth, a mathematical philosophy? And where are we going with this? And how does it all fit together? Oh, well, um, that's interesting question, as always. Um, I was going to do Schrodinger's equation, but it's obviously we're headed towards artificial intelligence, which Cam did a wonderful recording on artificial intelligence. And I was saying with artificial intelligence, where is reality and what is real? Uh, we're talking about truth. My idea of truth is equivalent to reality, and reality I'm defining as within the boundary conditions of Schrodinger's equation. And I was going to do stuff with Schrodinger's equation. But okay, artificial intelligence. Uh, is it real that we have life forms that can evolve? And if something can evolve and is Darwinian in what's called a path-dependent state, does that mean that is a real thing? Is this life like real in the form of life? Or is it just artificial? 
official or not real, if you like, because it's virtual, it's living in a virtual space. This I find very fascinating. So if we're looking at reality, do we define reality as in the physical world defined by Schrodinger's equation? Because when we get into virtual reality, there's no Schrodinger's equation. It's ones and zeros, okay? It's ideas, concepts, and these are things that do very real things and interface with the reality of this world, such as a stock exchange, buying and selling stocks, and being able to accumulate capital, being able to take investments and tell which investments work, which ones don't, and other things like that, and evolving within that particular space so we could take this blockchain technology and also uh, turn that into a life form. Is this real? Is this, is this a form of reality that we're witnessing the birth of some sort of different type of reality that is really just a virtual reality? And what does truth have to do with that? Because we see without the integrity of the blockchain, these artificial life forms, these virtual life forms, we'll call them, these virtual life forms cannot exist. They cannot survive without the integrity of something and it's finding integrity with the blockchain. So truth has to do with integrity. Wow. <laughs> hmm. Um, I want to know what specifically um, the Jane Austen talk has to do with um, reality and the, the truth and all these things that you're talking about in your book. So what was that talk about in relation to physical truth? Okay, I'm talking, uh, Tara brought in feminism and she brought in feminism through Jane Austen right. at that time, because we're talking about um, the age of Mary Shelley, for example, uh, Mary Wilsoncroft. Mary Shelley, you were yeah, Mary Shelley and her mother, Wilson, Mary Wilsoncroft and Wilsoncroft and, yeah. Wilson and uh, Paul Godwin. Yeah. This when they were starting Godwin. at the near Godwin, yeah, near the end of the uh, near the uh, end. Sixteen hundred, end of the sixteen hundreds. No, end of the seventeen hundreds. Near the oh. end of the seventeen hundreds. Oh, right, right, right. Because it was just into the French Revolution and all that. Yes. Yeah. So Jane Austen's after the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, and we then have uh, Pride and Prejudice, and a look at ordinary British life, very much in terms of reality. Right. Tara is saying Jane Austen was very much in tune with truth to write what the writer knew about. Mm -hmm. And since she knew about living in England, in the area which she lived, this was the way people lived. That's what she wrote about and human interactions at that time. And she talked about truth from a feminine, from a female point of view, not from feminist, but from a woman's point of view at that time, at that level of society, living that life. That's what life was like. That was the reality of it. But everything was very true. There was uh, integrity. There was... Uh, virtue and vice and purpose and things were described within her world but it was described from her point of view as a woman. I agree but what I am trying to say is that um, 
in all of these stories, I see that we're talking about truth and we're talking about integrity. We're talking about Bhutra. We're talking about a lot of things, which is all very interesting. But I'm still keep going back to your book, Physical Truth. And in your book, Physical Truth, you go, as my understanding is that you go step by step to a conclusion. And I'm just trying to figure out how these things are being woven in to physical truth. Okay, that's, that's a fair question. Um, I'm looking my premise. Let's go back to the premise or actual thesis, which is the truth is real. Okay, the truth is objective. It is not subjective. The truth is objective. What does that mean? I'm not talking about a religious point of view, but in a philosophical point of view and in a scientific point of view, what does it mean if truth is real? If truth is real, uh, goodness would be independent of social norm, that there would be virtue would be independent of social norm. It would mean we were talking about things like artificial intelligence or extraterrestrial life. Would they have to adhere to the same rules of integrity that we are trying to approach and discover in ourselves, in our world? It seems they do. It seems they do. And what I'm saying is that there is a mathematical point of view that we can derive a conclusion that says the truth is real. If the truth is real, what about love, for example? Is love real? Is love a form of objective reality? Truth is a form of objective reality, is what objective reality is, is truth, which I'm bringing up with Schrodinger's equation. <coughs> Excuse me. Cameron also was talking about in his artificial intelligence talk, he was talking about what we would call homogeneous knowledge and heterogeneous knowledge and heterogeneity and homogeneity, which he also talks about with path independence and path dependence. If something is path independent, it's conserved. It doesn't matter what path it took to get where it is. It is what it is, where it is, independently of the path taken to get there. That is a conservative field. Cameron is associating that with a homogeneous uh, form of knowledge. Heterogeneity is, for example, uh, heterogeneity is associated with non-conservative fields, which are path-dependent. So it depends the path you took on where you get to that is the quality or the potential of what you have at that particular position. If we look at it with heterogeneity, heterogeneity means two genus. Hetero is two, Greek for two genus, two types. Homogeneous is one type. So if we have a paramecium as a life form, the paramecium as a life form has one type. It doesn't evolve very much or very long, but very, very ancient life form. It is neither male nor female. It has meiosis and, and mitosis and meiosis, rather, uh, in cells splitting and sometimes you come together, intermix genetic code and then and split apart, again, mostly splitting. It's almost pretty well a clone of itself and there's it's a homogeneous life form if we now have a heterogeneous life form in other words mother nature goes through an awful lot of trouble and creates two sexes male and female this is a heterogeneous life form and evolution goes like a bat as soon as that happens 
And the point that Cameron is making, as soon as you have this heterogeneous life forms or heterogeneous knowledge, what you then have is a path-dependent form, much more path-dependent. It's not conserved. Things are made up like knowledge and experience that wasn't there before. Things are created. Things can be destroyed. It's not a conservative field. Now we're talking about truth. And in talking about truth, we almost always assume it from a male point of view. Almost always. Philosophy, almost always from a male point of view. Um, who's it? Alexia, what was the name of the woman in Egypt, the, the very famous? I don't know. Don't you remember? No. You studied her, remember? Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Okay, Alicia? Uh -uh. We'll look it up. We'll look it up and insert here. Okay. Okay. Um, and then it comes to artificial intelligence. Okay, we're talking about Jane Austen. Jane Austen, what, what Tara was bringing to the table, what she was bringing in, is that Jane Austen is very definite a female look at truth because that is what women in England and that class would be talking about or living and that was her life form so it was was very real and that does not mean it is not interesting to men men are very interested in looking at it because it's an entirely different way of looking at it. Uh, for the number of people who were were uh, were very uh, much a fan of, of Jane Austen, supported her very much. Some people didn't, but uh, wonderful male writers who, who supported her. Uh, if we now take a look at artificial intelligence as a breakthrough in technology and so forth, and has deep philosophical connotations to it, the one who really first formed a type of, of uh, artificial intelligence was Mary Shelley in Frankenstein, because Frankenstein is his body is all taken apart and, you know, dead body parts, which I guess that's, you know, rather than computer chips. Uh, but it was through electricity, they'd be jolted alive through electricity that would bring this body to life. But it was a human-made life form in the same way as artificial intelligence. And the artificial intelligence community all looked to Frankenstein as, if you like, all the template of where we're going with artificial intelligence. And it's a very moral book because it talks about the morality of Dr. Frankenstein with the monster who doesn't even have a name. And the real hero, I think, of the book is the monster's wife who was never made, who was never actually created. It started, but the, but the uh, wife wasn't there. And a lot of times I think the goth movement is a dedication to uh, the monster's wife who doesn't exist. It is so meaningless, so not there and so discredited that not only does not even have a name, but does not even exist. And therefore, that is the true hero of the book. Okay, that's how I interpret it. That's when I read it. That's how I interpret it. Oh, I see. The hero happens to be, it's a very feminist book because women are so discounted, they don't even exist, let alone have their viewpoints exist and so forth. So then I'm taking a look at philosophy, reality, and truth. Truth now that I'm thinking of it, even though it's a sidebar from where I'm going, truth is, it has to have uh, a heterogeneous aspect to it. It can't just be male truth or female truth. Uh, there's one truth, but it has 
different sides to it as a female point of view and a male point of view. So looking at what I'm trying to prove is that this is not dependent on probability. Because we look at the, the there's two schools. One is a religious school, one is an atheist school. So look at the atheist school is very much dependent on a mathematics and a physics that is dependent on probability because it's non-causal. There's no causality to probability. It just sort of happens. So the whole physics is now derived from a non-causal type of mathematics, which is probability. It also means that there is no understanding of statistics and probability with that approach, but nevertheless, the reason is because there can't be a causality to it. If we go to applied mathematics and solution of differential equations, there is a causality to it. In other words, the physics follows the mathematics, and the mathematics are in well-defined forms that are not fuzzy. They're well-defined to the solution. They're actually solutions to differential equations. Um, I don't know where femininity comes into it, but it's bloody important. So as a man, I sometimes ask the question, as a man, am I allowed to talk about feminism? And am I allowed to bring in a feminine point of view to what is truth and what is the reality of truth? I, I don't know. I feel very unqualified there. And I think that's a problem. And I think the world needs to be opened up more to good women mathematicians and good women philosophers. So what I'm looking at, the, the table of contents I've gone through, I started with a little theorem, which basically a little theorem um, counters Russell's paradox, which was the criteria of the atheist to show that there is no truth, that it's that truth that doesn't exist because all premises have a contradiction. So I'm disproving that. Equality, in chapter two, equality then brings in, okay, let's start again with an axiomatic approach, equality being Euclid's first axiom. So we're proving that truth is, um, uh, or actually disproving that truth is not, so that truth is. I'm looking at equality. I then talk more about Russell's paradox and the consequences of that. Then I'm bringing in the observer. Now, the observer is where we start to get something really absurd with the Copenhagen interpretation. And we really have to remove the Copenhagen interpretation. But in order to do that, I have to bring in the observer that the universe may well be a conscious entity that is perceiving itself. And as things happen, it is reacting to events. Everything is reacting to events within the universe. And those things that react to events are uh, observers, whether they be a photon of light or whether it be a stone. Jean-Paul Sartre now comes into play. Um, or bring it a little bit more modern, uh, it's after Niels Bohr and Schrodinger, Jean-Paul Sartre with the Second World War, because Sartre is the epitome of existentialism, where we're talking about it exists. That's an, you know, it's almost like a premise that says it is. It's in existence, which is where Jean-Paul Sartre is coming from. I'm coming from it from an axiomatic point of view, developing Schrodinger's equations, showing the tie between Schrodinger's equation and the Einstein field equations. Uh, after Schrodinger's equation, we talk about Schrodinger's cat. 
And we talk about the field equations, the Einstein field equation, bring that up because we're heading in that direction. Uh, then we talk about a particle photon gravitational interaction, which brings in Maxwell's equations, because the three things in the unified field theory, Maxwell's equations, uh, quantum mechanics, and gravity under the Einstein field equation. Uh, we talk about discussion, elastic collision, and so forth, and calculations with general relativity. And then we get into this wonderful idea of string theory. Because you have said and pointed out that reality or physical reality is a result of the mathematics that determines the physical reality. Let's take a look at the mathematics. And then from the physical reality that comes out of it, we're seeing what we mean by truth, that it is. Um, string theory, I think, is right. I don't think it's, I think they gave up on it too soon. They're talking about things like superstring theory, which I think is completely wrong. But string theory, I think, is right. String theory is different than superstring theory. And string theory's got a lot going for it, in particular following the eigenvalues from Schrodinger's equation. And if you can match them to the Einstein field equations, now we've got something together. Oh, then I talk about galaxies and the unified field theory, because now we're getting the, oh, and the next spiral structure of NGC 3198 which is a spiral of straight line. Now, that was a point where you and I really had a discussion looking at galactic structure when you finally began to, uh, to, to come up with this wonderful conclusion of the mathematics determines reality and that there is order in the universe. And as soon as we see order in the universe, now this becomes incredibly powerful because that means there's a blueprint to the universe and the blueprint to the universe is mathematics. And that's Roxy's statement. And to me, Roxy's statement completely annihilates the Copenhagen interpretation. That's unbelievably important, particularly philosophically and determine whether or not truth actually exists. So we look at the rotation curve and so forth, but then you see uh, 3198, which really proves that dark matter doesn't exist at all. It's a scam. It really is. Uh, and there's a mess of other stuff. And we can take a look at it also, by taking certain measurements, we know the universe is not expanding. So the universe, so there is no dark matter. The universe is not expanding, and neutrinos travel at the speed of light. So personally, those are my three statements. The philosophy that we're looking at, the philosophy that we're looking at, um, I think results in in our purpose uh, here in, in you know, where we're at and our, our purpose, that even though, okay, there is truth, this reality actually exists, so what? What does that mean? What are we supposed to do about it? Okay, it's sort of like one of the things is, okay, the truth is real. So we get to the center of everything. We, we claim to everybody and show through, the truth is real. Well, yeah, of course it is. Now what do you want us to do? And it's kind of like live your life accordingly. And does that make a change in our lives, knowing that truth is real and that integrity is an objective form of reality? So after NGC 3198, uh, go to chapter 13, which is, of course, an unlucky chapter. Then in chapter 14, we talk about 111 spiral galaxies. Where we can see the universe is not expanding. And if the universe is not expanding, the biggest question then coming, and this is important because we're looking at the universe as an infinite and eternal realm. And we 
the reality and the truth is that we are living in an infinite and eternal realm and we ourselves are transitory and finite. What role do we have to play in this? And that's where I will be going to take a look at this. But, but one of the biggest problems is the universe has to wind down after a while because of entropy. And we're seeing behavior of the galaxies, uh, galactic centers, and very fast-spinning black holes, and we bring in these equations that we've developed, and we can see that the galaxies are rejuvenating themselves, and it may be that galaxies are eternal. Galaxies were never formed. They always were. And all of this always was. But it's evolving. It is not steady state. So usually when they say there is no Big Bang and there is no expanding universe, usually the alternative is, is well, it must be steady state. But that's using the fallacy of the excluded middle. Suppose there is no steady state. Suppose the universe is dynamic and evolving and changing all the time. And at the same time, it's eternal and infinite and is not expanding at all. That is quite possible. And that's exactly what's going on. And, okay, we talk about entropy reversal and boundary conditions of Schrodinger's equation. And then the whole book here is chapter 16 and basically concludes with Roxy's statement, which is your statement that mathematics determines the physical reality in which we live. Hypatia. Her name was Hypatia. She was killed. She's a martyr. Well, now, move forward and I'll give you this talk from Cameron Rout regarding artificial life and his thoughts and comments on artificial or, uh, yeah, on AI and artificial intelligence um, and the blockchain. Thank you. The concept of joining artificial intelligence with blockchain technology has some interesting ramifications. On one hand, we have a technology that is capable of replicating the instantaneous thought of humans, um, perhaps currently on a relatively trivial level, but at scale can create some interesting results. On the other hand, we have a technology that's capable of replicating the path dependency of human behavior and thought, um, and that is blockchain. And between the two, we have the capability of emulating particular aspects of humanity that haven't really been explored in the media that I've been exposed to. For example, the concept of a robot which can uh, think and work for itself uh, is thought of as an, as an entity which is reliant on human factors, such as the production of the parts, um, the programming of its software, and, uh, you know, it's, it's even its ability to navigate the world is dependent on, um, you know, the human environment around it, um, be, having to recharge itself, etc. And that's, that's the physical manifestation of a, of a robot, for example, exploring the world. Blockchains have the capability of, have an interesting capability that has been made possible by 
um, cryptographic uh, tools like the Enigma protocol, for example, which allows um, algorithms to be developed and tested with data without actually exposing the algorithm itself. So let me give you an example. Um, I put together a trading algorithm that's capable of analyzing elements of the blockchain like, say, cryptocurrencies and allocating resources between them to create a, uh, a profit, a trading algorithm, so to speak. And this trading algorithm has the ability to um, generate revenue for the, uh, for the source, whoever wrote the code, some percentage of the returns goes to the source, and the rest of the percentage goes to the um, owners of the capital that have invested in this algorithm. And this results in a annuity for, you know, people investing in this algorithm. And this is really neat because we can then, um, you know, someone can publish that they have an algorithm that returns a certain amount. You can take that algorithm, run it on your own test data so that you become confident in its ability to uh, generate returns without actually seeing the code. Uh, you invest in it and then um, the, the blockchain script um, sends money back to you. Etc. So you can imagine this model being quite interesting and a new and fascinating aspect of blockchain tech because we have, um, <clears throat> and we don't have to involve a, uh, we, we eliminate the counterparty risk in that type of analysis. Now, when you take this a few steps uh, down the road, uh, it gets interesting pretty quickly. So imagine, so these, these algorithms are run on, let's say these algorithms are run on smart contracts on a blockchain like the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and are, or at least uh, executed on the blockchain. It gets complicated if you get into actually where it's stored and how it runs, etc. But for the sake of simplicity, you can imagine that there is a algorithm um, that is executed on the blockchain and uh, is capable of, of making a return to particular addresses, etc. Now, what's interesting is if you combine this with the idea of artificial intelligence and you create those algorithms to be uh, intelligent algorithms that are capable of creating new algorithms, um, which is not that crazy of an idea to create an algorithm that creates algorithms, especially with something like trading software that's really quite simple. Um, and trading software, as far as uh, the, the type of thought, it's not simple in, in, the, in the actual analysis, but it only has limited functions. You know, move capital from here to here, move capital from here to here. Um, and that's, that's about the level of sophistication in what it has to do in the outputs. Um, the type of analysis that goes into it can be more complicated. And so perhaps we have an algorithm that um, is programmed every block to generate new algorithms, uh, take the winning algorithm and then learn from it, and then write its own program into the next algorithm. There's nothing stopping a contract from, um, from actually writing a contract. That's totally fine. Um, so we can have one contract in the blockchain creating a new block, uh, contract for the sake of uh, generating revenue and you can create these tendrils, so to speak, over time that are trying to uh, come up with better ways of reallocating, um, reallo reallocating capital and sending the dividends back to the original source, which eventually makes its way back to the original investor. So this is really interesting because if those, uh, what would make sense is for those algorithms to become uh, competitive, and so we have a Darwinian process of capital allocation, where the, you know, each generation may breed several new uh, algorithms, which are capable of uh, creating 
return, um, and if any of them beat the original algorithm, the original algorithm dies, and the one you know producing more returns, etc., so on and so forth. And so we have this uh, Darwinian process of, of artificial intelligence generating uh, new, uh, increasingly improved um, algorithms for uh, generating uh, return. Now, what's interesting is usually this type of thing is thought of it would eventually run out of steam, but this this type of algorithm would actually uh, build steam as it goes because the ability to generate profits is actually increasingly, uh, you know, funding the research, so to speak, so that a uh, blockchain algorithm will be able to um, fund more explorations uh, in each particular block if it's successful. And so these uh, blockchains, uh, blockchain algorithms become... Uh, surprisingly similar to uh, to organisms. Without actually being very sophisticated organisms, they're sort of the equivalent of the first uh, first uh, in in the in the primordial soup. You know, the first uh, organisms to learn how to duplicate their own information in a path-dependent way, and that's why the path dependency is so important because that's what gives them independence from. Humanity. So as long as the blockchain is alive uh, and and runs itself, these algorithms are free to fund themselves uh, and give themselves the juice to perpetuate themselves. And the idea is, such an algorithm would uh, generate profits that are returned with some uh, value to the uh, person who built it now, or or invested in it along the way, etc., and, and provide value. Um, but what's interesting is it's possible that someone could create such an algorithm without uh, programming a backdoor or a um, kill switch, so to speak, for the algorithm. Um, it could be entirely self-sustaining and uh, highly competitive. So we may have some that are you know, utility uh, blockchain robots that go out and are uh, you know, uh, allocating capital for return, and we may have some that are just for fun, uh, I mean, it could be for for benevolent purposes or malicious purposes, it doesn't really matter, but um, I'm sure some programmer could uh, build one of these machines um, to operate itself on the, on the blockchain with no intent to disperse the capital that it's accumulated. So it's possible that uh, we have an organism that, you know, block after block is uh, learning how to accumulate capital for itself with no intent of necessarily giving it back to any particular person. Now, it may be in its best interest to not hoard capital because uh, it doesn't, you don't necessarily uh, gain, get a return on, on hoarding that capital on the blockchain, so it may be incentivized to reinvest it for the sake of return through these uh, algorithms, so to speak, um, but it isn't necessarily accountable to anyone, uh, and that's the, the really interesting thing. So, so the kernel of, um, the kernel of, of life uh, as we know it, um, you know, we think of artificial intelligence, like for example, Sindar's uh, presentation of the duplex software at Google's I.O., where he was able to beat the Turing test. Well, I don't know if that, some people would argue it's not actually defeating the Turing test, but it's a it's a landmark uh, in the um, in in that test in in the Turing test. A person did talk to a robot in a relatively sophisticated conversation and didn't know they were talking to a to a robot. Um, so we can see that it's not far before, you know, maybe a, a true uh, Turing test is, is defeated. But um, that does not capture the importance of the path dependency. 
And if we have this other organism living in the blockchain, even if it is a relatively simple organism, um, it's based on the concept of heterogeneity and and the heterogeneity of resources, which is the basis of life's uh, definition in in the need for information to um, to perpetuate itself in a heterogeneous way. So the concept of having a uh, blockchain algorithm duplicating itself in a simple manner is actually just as interesting, if not more interesting, than uh, the ability to communicate with human beings. Because over time, we may have multiple of these algorithms that are uh, allocating capital and reallocating capital for the sake of a, an improved return, funding themselves to get larger, and, and actually um, potentially using that funding to improve that artificial intelligence, which could evolve in ways beyond simply uh, allocating capital. It could, um, could have interesting long-term results, especially if that progress is assisted by people where these genetic algorithms that are able to uh, reproduce themselves in this uh, Darwinian process um, are, if human beings are contributing to this process and upgrading that artificial intelligence to uh, have more capabilities, then uh, it may even accelerate that process where those capabilities are uh, more advanced and uh, we have a very interesting relationship between humans outside the blockchain and humans and, and this uh, artificial life, so to speak, more so than artificial intelligence in the blockchain. This all stays in the, in the realm of, of uh, you know, an interesting academic exercise until you get to the point where... Um, the blockchain is uh, the bridge between the, the, the blockchain and the outside world um, is bridged. And that could happen with the integration of um, algorithm, algorithms and blockchain technologies in construction, so to speak, so that, uh, you know, these self-learning blockchain algorithms could be also used in manufacturing processes, in energy generation, um, etc., and more integrated into the real world, where it may become increasingly difficult to uh, turn them off. And so, uh, if we eventually have a, um, you know, a world in which a, a manufacturing process or three D printed parts, etc., are are capable of being produced, uh, you know, autonomously by a uh, being, so to speak, a, a simple organism on the blockchain that is capable of, of uh, making capital, we may train such a algorithm to build devices, market them on social media, and sell them and ship them, etc. Uh, we're very close to an uh, automated um, supply chain for many consumer products, and we could actually uh, have that process eventually be run entirely by an, an autonomous system um, and if those autonomous systems are not accountable or responsible outside of the blockchain then they are only accountable to themselves and we basically have created uh, you know a, a, a force in the world that is um, you know at a, at maybe a next level of science fiction so to speak um, that is, is, is a lot more similar to a world is that, that where we interact with artificial life and 
um, as opposed to artificial intelligence. Even though artificial intelligence is at the core of it, it's not about you know, necessarily being able to speak with it, although that could easily be one of the uh, implications is that autonomous blockchain robots uh, develop the ability to uh, interact with the outside world through uh, voice, etc., through human interaction, which could also make for an interesting relationship. So that is basically how I think we end up with a world where, you know, we as humans end up coexisting with an artificial life form that is a lot more interesting than just a artificial intelligence system that's designed to be as much like interacting with a human um, as opposed to something that has evolved for itself into something that has a relationship with humans. Um, And what is even more interesting about that is what is the difference between such an organism um, and a uh, you know human or animal organism and what are the how does that change the way that we think of or fear um, artificial intelligence is there an opportunity for it to have a um, uh, for it to have a a conscience so to speak uh, if it's only accountable to itself um, does that mean it also has the ability to Uh, control that uh, or have agency over its uh, actions and therefore meet many of the requirements that people may impose on humans for uh, for a soul so to speak uh, is the concept of agency I don't know it's more complicated than that but it's definitely an interesting topic Thanks for listening, everybody. If you liked what you heard, you may subscribe in your podcast provider and perhaps share in various social media sites. Bruce has promised he won't change the links anymore and screw up trying to find the next episode. Please enjoy the rest of your day and may everything work out for the best. We try to have a new podcast every Saturday, so see you next week.